Welcome to the Movement Brain Podcast, where we discuss the possibilities of movement through a neural lens. The Movement Brain Podcast is hosted by the Nerve Guys, Gareth Kelly and James McCambridge. So this is the first episode of the Movement Brain Podcast with Gareth and James from Move to Perform. Um, so because it is the very first episode, we're going to introduce ourselves, a bit about our history, what we've done, what got us into neurology-based training and movement and all that kind of thing, as well as that really talk a little bit about the development of neurology, um, how it's gone from sort of having a real sort of shooting star phase into then rehab and sports, and now how everybody's looking at it to get an edge in their sports, that kind of thing. And really the goal is, for this episode anyway, for the very first episode, is for us to help or not help people, but sort of show people that neurology is useful in a variety of different ways, not just rehab, not just anxiety or anything like that. It's useful daily, and you can actually change a lot through using brain-based tools. How's that sound? What do you think? Sounds good. That's kind of my hope is the sparking the curiosity side of things, I think, is really important just because I'm starting to get to the stage now where even with my background in acrobatics, I come in to teach acrobatics classes and by the end of it, we've just gone on tangents about the brain and it's just become, that bit has always just ended up being the more interesting bit and the bit that everybody goes, oh, hang on, there's, you mean there's more to learn here and there's more to know? And um, yeah, hopefully by the end of this, people are gonna get some sort of idea of why we've gone a bit so fanatical about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, in a short space of yeah. time. Do you ever get to the point where people just go, oh God, he's going to talk about bloody brains again. Yeah. And then you always just feel them, just their eyes glazing over. As you go, oh, that's because it's such and such. And you just see them drifting off already. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty, yeah. I'm the two types of people, the people who are just like, oh, everything that guy says is cool. And then the people who are like, oh no, look busy. Yeah, <laughs> look busy. He's going to talk about squishy things. Yeah. Cool. Well, let, let's start off. Um, so, I'm Garth, this is James. Sounds like a really bad rock band intro, doesn't it? Like yep. an acoustic folk band. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just basically, we'll start off with our histories first. So, do you want to go first or will I go first? Um, I think actually, probably better for you to go first because I actually got into neurology through you getting into it. So, yes, that's um, yeah, maybe uh, I'll kind of. Jumped in where when you it's you, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I was at circus school and I had an accident and I really hurt my back. And I just I didn't really actually know what was wrong with it, and I just went to the physio and did all that kind of thing. And this, this point, I graduated, so I didn't really have like an on call physio from the school or anything. So, went to the physio, did all that kind of thing. Thought I just kind of, you know, as I thought at the time, I thought I'd bulged a disc you know, that traditional said, um, and my back was just seizing up and I couldn't, every time I sneezed, I just, I cried and fell over and I couldn't, you know, roll over in bed or put my socks on or anything for nearly a year, nearly a year. And then my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, hey Laura, <laughs> she, uh, she was going to a personal trainer who was also practicing at that point neurology stuff and he was just starting a new company based around neurology and his name was Luke, Luke Sherrill from AMN. If anybody wants to look him up, please do. Um, lovely guys. 
So that well, was the Academy of Applied Movement Neurology. Applied Neurology. For it. That's the one, yes. And we'll stick links down below on the YouTube playlist and the whatever platform we release this on playlist. We're, wherever we're at, yeah. yeah. We're, we're not the most technologically savvy. No, we are not. But unless it's about brains. Um, so yeah, so I she got me to go to him for a session and I was like, oh, I've busted my back doing this and, you know, it's really sore, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this. And he was right, well, he did all, obviously, your standard test that you're going to do, your range of motion tests and all that. But then he started playing with my cranial nerves and then he used, so basically as an assessment, he would use isometric strength test. So I'd hold my hand out, my arm out, and he would then give a bit of uh, force and I'd have to resist it and we'd see what kind of effect that had. And at the time I didn't know, but what he was doing was he was doing biofeedback to see if my brain liked or didn't like what he was doing. So he was playing with my cranial nerves, and at the time I thought he was just rubbing my head. Um, <laughs> and then he, he hit one and I just lost all strength in my arm. He was able just to flop my arm down. Um, and he was like, you should go and see someone. He goes, I'm worried about your lumbar spine, but you should specifically go and see someone about S1. Go and see someone get a scan about S1. And so I went, I was like, mm-hmm, okay. Like, obviously he's just sending me to get a scan because it's my lower back and I think I've bulged the disc in my back. But L4, L5, S1, all had healed bricks. So right. I'd actually broke it. Didn't know. I broke it in three points. And they had all healed up. And that's why I was so restricted and so in pain for so long. Now, the only reason I was able to still move about that I credit to doing aerial cradle and flying trapeze because my QL, like down in the hip flexors and psoas and stuff, was all so strong that, that I think that actually saved me from getting really fucking messed up. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, so, and then once I knew that, then I knew... Um, using some of the neurological techniques and training tools, I was able to start getting over that fear because it was obvious because the injury had healed, but the amount of fear that the brain was in, it was petrified of doing anything. So I was able to slowly then start that journey of getting out of it and getting moving again and doing that kind of thing. But yeah, so, and then I think it, was, it wasn't that long after that, I think it was only about six months or eight months or so, like less than a year after that, I was still sort of moving my way out of injury, if that makes sense, getting my movement, getting lower in my threat levels basically, um, especially around moving again, and then me and you got talking about it. Yeah, well it's interesting hearing from that actually, because uh, I hadn't realised before that uh, you had Rex as well that had been healed and that's one of the big things uh, that changed for me with uh, looking at a neurological approach is that your understanding of pain changes massively uh, for most for most people the way that they understand pain or the way that you kind of assume pain would work is that it's going to be present when there's an injury uh, it's pretty baffling to kind of say oh you could have broken your back in three places have it healed over and you didn't even notice and you didn't weren't even getting symptoms until 
well after that and I've had situations with um, with myself where I was a gymnastics coach or originally I was kind of into gymnastics got into coaching and uh, I remember one gymnast that I had uh, came in complaining about uh, knee pain and uh, sort of said what can I do where I don't use my knees and in gymnastics uh, not very not much, much like yeah. you're really gonna you're just gonna be in pain so we kind of <laughs> wouldn't let him do anything really and uh, until we got to the trampolines oh no I can go on the trampoline like I yeah really excited for for being on the trampoline um, did a whole hour and a half on the trampoline went home knee pain came back went to the hospital realized he had split his patella in, in two uh, but again had had the pain before and then managed to just make it disappear for something that he really liked and really wanted to do and uh, yeah I, I couldn't understand that at the time how if you if, if a bone in your body was in two separate pieces how you wouldn't be screaming in agony uh, but later on once I started learning about how uh, pain is created by the brain, a signal created by the brain, and actually there's a lot of different factors, the threatening stimulus, the uh, actual injury or the tissue damage that quite often is associated with pain, uh, actually has, isn't the deciding factor when it comes to whether or not we feel pain, so I think yeah. that's quite uh, cool to think about for me. Yeah, and I've had a, something actually, talking about my back, Going back a little bit before that, so that was after I graduated. Um, going back to when I first started, so I'd done my first term, and it was the year before you started, just for everyone that doesn't know, me and James went to the same circus school. So the year before James started, it was the Christmas party, obviously, that you would have before you go home for your Christmas holidays. And I was doing a balance with somebody, and they fell, and my head went forward so chin to chest and I thought I pulled a muscle in my neck mm. so I went out that night and I was doing um, back head balances was balancing somebody on my head and I think it's a Crocs like I think it, um, a hand balance with a friend of ours for drinks and stuff in the pub and I didn't realise till I went home over Christmas and I stopped using my left arm I was like there's something wrong here maybe it's just I'm thick my nerves just don't realise what's going on. Hmm. Um, but then I stopped being able to use my left arm and I'd fractured my neck and a little bit of it had put pressure on my spinal cord. Oh man. I just, <laughs> nerves just constantly. But I, again, but as you say, but because I didn't associate that with something serious, I didn't get the pain that you would think, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I just passed it on back. And on the flip side, you see kids fall over and if their parents are look terrified uh they suddenly become terrified even if there's nothing really really wrong like the the tissue damage is one aspect of it but actually your perception of it the way you deal with it uh all of that will add to the story and you can build something uh very very negative uh if if all the things align in that way or actually you can have something that maybe isn't so bad if uh, things align in your favor or if you just have more very hungry games there <laughs> yeah. 
yeah if it's uh, if it's meant to be if uh, yeah if you if you know enough if you know uh, the information then um, you you can deal with it a little bit better yeah um, that's something actually I hope that people do get from this podcast that listen to it is it's not that we're trying to give people tools to go and change anything it's just giving them the knowledge to know that other things can matter and it can actually have an effect because it's everybody saying knowledge is power once you know why something's being caused it's actually not as scary and not as bad they kind of get your way out of it or change direction or you know what i mean yeah there's a lot more that's possible than people think are possible um and on that note uh, i'll give a bit of reading material which i know you've read uh yeah. that is the one that we basically tell to everybody uh norman doidge the brain that changes itself it's a book on neuroplasticity uh and that's something in terms of neuroscience uh for a very long time we thought that the brain was just fixed that once you did all the learning you did as a kid your brain was just done and uh, you weren't able to learn anything new you weren't able to develop anything new and this book is just all the stages where they discovered that that uh, wasn't in fact true that the brain will change in an insane amount of ways where uh, Normally we hear people saying, oh, I'm just not quite uh, flexible enough to learn gymnastics. And in, by the end of this book, he has uh, he's looking at scientists that are causing people to be able to see through their tongues. And yeah, things not that see are, through them. See with like, them. A, like a window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see with their tongues. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just mind-blowing beyond belief and it starts to make you question all those things that you didn't think were possible for yourself actually seem really, really small yeah. in terms of uh, the, the reality of it. Yeah. Um, one thing, just before we go on to about your history and stuff, actually, one thing from that book, that all the stories were brilliant. Um, all the stories, true stories, uh, are, were all brilliant and really inspiring. But one thing that was really clear through all of it was intent. So these people really wanted to change. These people had a, a like a focus and a mission to do it. And it just shows you if you have that kind of intent, what you can actually what the brain can do, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. that was my main sort of theme through the whole thing. That's why I just tell everyone that that should be like in school. I think mm. people should be reading that kind of thing. But yes. Anyway, let's go on a bit about your history, because I can't actually remember how we got talking about it. Yeah, so I think uh, we ended up talking, we went to a session with those guys at AMN, the Academy of Applied Movement Neurology. Yes, that's They right. were running acrobatic, brain-based movement or acrobatic sessions in a gymnastics club, and while the acrobatic components were kind of nothing new to me. I'd spent most of my life th through gymnastics at the time. Uh, they did throw in a load of it, exercises that I was like, oh, these are interesting and challenging. And uh, I just had me slightly curious that I got to hear some of your stories. I was kind of at the time looking for something that would help me change things up a little bit with my teaching so um yeah i was i found that just technical gymnastics was getting really really stale and um i thought 
a lot of the stuff I was teaching, I was able to give these really, really technical points, but I didn't actually think anyone was able to understand them. Uh, I thought that like it was actually becoming less useful. The more I knew, the less useful it was to anyone yeah. else who was trying to learn the stuff. And yeah, it just so happened they were running a course. Um, I signed up to it, and one of the things that they gave was just this uh, thing called an isocad. And uh, the idea was you would take both of your thumbs, you would look from one thumb to the other thumb really, really quickly without, uh, without letting your head move, which uh, actually quite difficult if anyone wants to try it. But I took it, he said, oh, this is a really great way to, to warm, up, uh, warm up your brain. And that's all I took. I didn't really understand anything other than this is warming up your brain and it's gonna make you move better. So I kind of took it to all my students. I was like, all right, do this thing with your thumbs and see see what happens. And people were going into back bands and sometimes they'd get a little bit further. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, and people were doing handstands and then they do handstands for a bit longer sometimes or sometimes they do it and then their handstands would get way worse. I go, <laughs> no idea what, like, why would a warm up be bad? I don't know. Then um, I had this one person who came in, uh, just so happened I told them that what I was doing uh, and we said, well, let's try it. So we did the kind of, you know, can you reach down and touch your toes? So like a standard range of motion test? Yeah, just yeah. a range of motion, forward bend, try and touch your toes. Uh, she was able to get about to her knees and uh, struggled getting to her knees and just kept saying, well, this, there's no way. Like, I hate moving this, everything feels stiff. I don't feel good moving anyway. I was like, okay, cool, uh, let's try this. Uh, you know, dart your eyes back and forward a uh, bunch of times. Try it again. She <laughs> reached down, her palms of her hands hit the floor and she just sort of bounced up, left the room, came back in, she was crying saying, I've never been able to to do anything like that in, in my life. Um, within about five minutes, she wasn't able to do it again, uh, but we were able to get it back. So it was quite fun to play with, but that was kind of the point where I went, oh man, everything I know, there's this huge chunk that is missing because I have no idea. As far as I'm concerned, that's not possible. And yeah. uh, I need to know what that is. Yeah, and as far as a lot of standard training protocols are concerned, it's not possible because you look at, most, and we'll talk about this a bit later on, I'm sure, but most training programs will be do this program for 12 weeks and see if there's any changes, or four weeks, or six weeks, or whatever. It's always done in terms of weeks. Yeah. Isn't it? Then it sort of elicit change. None of them really consider instant change. Yeah, it's all about the time because it's all about the mechanical model of the body, and that's looking at the muscle. And we know, well, muscle tissue normally builds at this rate, so we can expect in this amount of time, the muscle tissue, if we do the right thing, is gonna get bigger or smaller or more or less tense, whatever, whatever it is you're trying to do to the body. Uh, and if you're looking at it as a mechanical system, then it's kind of the same as like carpentry. You just, how long does it take to physically shear something off or add yeah. something on? Uh, you're just gonna have to leave it to that, but actually, yeah, the brain doesn't work, the muscle tissue for sure works like that when you look at just the muscle, muscle tissue, but actually there's signs from, that the brain will give us 
in terms of what's happening in real time, whether it actually likes something or doesn't like something, yeah. which is much more useful because we can know whether we're on the right track at the beginning of the journey rather than halfway through. Which is a nightmare. Just go, oh, we've done this for 12 weeks and that didn't work. Yay! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you want to do those classes? Yeah. When you start those... going a little bit deeper? classes started doing that i started uh I, I wanted to know a bit more as well and just happened at the time uh was put in touch with a guy yami yami tikanin who's crossfit coach coached uh annie thor's daughter who's yes world's strongest woman or fittest, fittest woman, woman at yeah. some point uh, and he's coached a lot of great uh, CrossFit athletes. He put me in touch with another company, uh, Z Health Performance Solutions. And those guys, uh, it's a company founded by a guy, Dr. Eric Cobb. And he's basically the guru on this stuff. He works with athletes, the military, and uh, rehab clients. Uh, to kind of create a more holistic approach to things. Um, he's been oh, spent, it's got to be over 25 years now, kind of just taking all the research from everywhere and trying to make uh, personal, tra personal trainers that are more like uh, the general practitioners of movement. So people who would know when you need to go see uh, a doctor, when you need to go see a neurologist, when you need to go see a physical therapist or a nutritionist, uh, but actually can start you off on a little bit of that journey, uh, no matter what way to go. And from there, I started getting into all the other things that are possible with uh, the nerves in your body. So kind of a separate story. I was born with the whole left side of my face quite a lot bigger than the uh, right. It's still there a little now it's much harder to tell but i had a number of surgeries when i was a child to try and get rid of all of the tissue uh they didn't leave so much kind of lasting damage but then whenever whenever i was older once i was over 18 they decided uh first of all they would remove my wisdom teeth and then uh, shave off quite a bit of the bone and take out a lot of the uh, fatty tissue in my left cheek. And that left me with uh, damage to some of the nerves. Uh, nothing major or serious. Uh, I don't know if anyone ever sees uh, when you have damage to the facial nerve, actually uh, it can really change the shape of your face. So I got quite lucky in that um, most of the most of the damage was very very slight but it did mean that my facial nerve I uh, wasn't able to move my face in certain ways that not necessarily anything major that I wanted to do but uh, blowing out candles for example that's uh, I wasn't able to blow I wasn't able to whistle anymore and, uh, and things uh -huh. like that um, and I also have some very weird sensations in my face, so uh, as well as the facial nerve, there's also the trigeminal nerve, which deals with sensation across your face. I have some really weird and really cool responses <laughs> when I run my finger across my face. Uh, it's not so much nowadays, but if I run my hand across uh, the top of my cheekbone, 
I can feel another hand running uh, almost from the top of my eyelid, under my eyelid, and kind of around my eyeball. So as I stroke uh, this part of my cheekbone, I can feel that uh, there's a double there's massage, a phantom, yeah. phantom hand. Uh, how do you say? Yeah, that uh, kind of kind of rubs that. Sensation. Yeah, and I get the same thing around my my nose as well. So I can rub the uh, front of my cheek just next to uh, my nose, and I'll feel like another finger stroking down the top of my nose. Uh, and then also when I blink, actually, um, I'll do this to the camera, but I'm aware this will not be visible to all of our listeners. Uh, when I blink, actually, my I get that twitch in the yes. uh, left side of my lip. So I got all of this stuff basically uh, when somebody comes at your face and takes removes some of the bone with a drill. Uh, well, that's yeah. The proprioceptive maps on my face are now super confused because, uh, as far as they were concerned, there was a whole load of extra stuff that's supposed to be there that now isn't, and. Uh, part of that confusion is now they're not sure what sensation is what. Yeah. Um, this, a few years ago, would have caused pain, uh, but through working with uh, Z-Health practitioners and becoming a Z-Health practitioner myself, uh, I've been able to do some work on the facial nerve to minimize the pain and also be able to blow. I can whistle two notes now, I believe. I can... Uh, sometimes I can do it in a siren, but I'm not going to embarrass yeah. myself by trying uh, <laughs> right now. And uh, the other big one for me was at the time I was a balloon modeler, so I was that's what I was going to bring up. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of my party tricks was those modeling balloons that uh, nobody's able to blow up by mouth. I could do three of them at the same time, and uh, that was quite upsetting when I. After after a couple of years, obviously, it took about a year for the whole swelling to go down and me to yeah. figure out how things were. Uh, yeah, not being able to, to blow up even one balloon, uh, even a regular, like regular rubber birthday balloon, um, that was quite upsetting. Yeah. And, but now, I've, through doing a lot of training, I've actually been able to get that back. And what the really fun part about that was, uh, the surgeons who performing surgery and all of the kind of urologists and stuff that I saw medically had said, well, that's not something that we're looking at as an option. That's um, not something that we're going to deal with. It's not something we're worried about. And it's not something that we think is possible for your recovery. Yeah. And in fact, they sort of said anything after six months uh, is that's, that's, how you're, that's how you are. And I'm still finding things uh, five or six years later. And the thing is as well, um, if anybody has never tried to blow up a balloon model of balloon, I recommend you try it just so you can see how goddamn difficult it is. <laughs> I, I could, you could believe me here for six hours and give me a million pounds if I could blow one up. Not happening. Yeah. So hard. Uh, but yeah, so we both had reasons to look at these other paths, like these other like neurology brain based paths because people like me were just saying, I'll just stretch and it'll be fine. But that wasn't doing anything. People were saying to you, well, what you've got after six months is what you've got, good luck, you know? And that wasn't anything at all. 
And I actually remember whenever you were really focused on blowing up balloons again. And again, it's the same thing. It's the intent that, you know, the focus, the will to do it. Um, I find things really, really important. Um, yeah. yeah, a lot of people kind of throw away that and say that's um, something that gurus just say, oh, if you didn't, if, if it doesn't work, then you didn't want it enough. But actually, there is a lot to, uh, there's a lot of even research, I believe, behind it. I don't know if I can quote anything, but... Uh, Not off the top, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, sort of shows the when especially as adults if we have a reason to want something um and if we have a very strong emotional drive for it it goes a long way to giving us first of all the energy to be able to do it but in terms of the neural plasticity and the brain's ability to be able to rewire itself um it it makes it much more likely that a shift will occur if yeah. there's nothing really at stake uh our brains are really happy to kind of stay the way they are yeah because kids kids can sort of trigger neuroplasticity passively as well because they're young and everything's just firing all the time whereas as you say as we get older that kind of dies off and we need to have a reason to change so we need to have we need to have a want to change so we need that right level of stressor and reward going off in order to facilitate the change so you, you it's yeah if you want it enough you will change will happen yeah, yeah. The more things we learn, the more we just, uh, the more our brain goes, well, this must be how the world is, so I'm just, yeah. I'm happy like this. Yeah. And unless there is a change big enough to uh, to warrant doing something differently, then it's going to be yeah. very happy to stay how it is. So we're going to actually quickly, briefly, um, if you fancy it, cover a quick development, though, pathway kind of neuroscience, say, um, from probably one of the really interesting points from safe from the first world war through yeah. through you know sort of the general where people looked at it just kind of as, as research and rehab and then now how people are actually using it in sports performance and trying to get an edge that kind of thing yes i think the reason that this stuff why neurology and neuroscience the reason it's becoming a bit of a fad now or like a you know the buzz thing yeah everyone's into it everybody's that. trying to find out about or if they're not trying to find out the about word it, of the moment yeah they're they're if they're not trying to find out about it now they're about to be trying to find out yeah. about it they <laughs> don't realize it yet um it's mostly because of first of all technology and second of all uh data so in terms of science nobody really goes around trying to find to find stuff unless they think they have a reason to try and find it out. So when most people don't have anything wrong with uh, their brains or if there's not enough variation in people's brains, then there's nothing new to discover. So that could be done in two ways. So the more people you get, the more, more variation you're likely to have in any aspect of, of the brain. So whether it's uh, your language abilities or just something like IQ or intelligence or your ability to perform certain tasks, your ability, brain's ability to help you move. Uh, just having more people means there's more data to collect. So that's gonna be really interesting. And then secondly, uh, when things go wrong, that's the, first time where people start to go oh let's take a look at this let's um 
let's find out what's happening here. Yeah. And uh, the 20th century for brains was this huge uh, kind of spike in both of those things. We were able to collect huge number of the, the huge amounts of data in uh, for a wide range of problems, and one of those things was war and wars, like the coming to the rescue again, typical <laughs> yeah. war, always going on violence. Um, <laughs> yeah, First World War in particular, but kind of any once machine guns were a thing, uh, they, you start to get large numbers of people getting shot in the head, and uh, one of the things that happens is then when people get shot in similar areas, uh, then they start to have damage in similar parts of the brain, and then you can start to go, oh, the, this is where things are similar, this is where things are different, and that kind of sparks, uh, oh, we think this is what uh, those parts of the brain are for. And this kind of, a lot of science gets done in this way, you know, things will happen by accident, like the classic psychology, the textbook sort of psychology example was the guy Phineas Gage, who... I'm just going to bring him up. <laughs> yeah, 1848, I know the year because it's been in so many books, and I'm not an academic by any stretch, like, but Phineas Gage is the guy who had a railroad spike blowing through his dynamite? skull. Yeah. yeah, dynamite, planting railroad uh, tracks, or wet planting. You yeah, know, plant, plant, planting railroad really. tracks. Hope they grow, Laying railroad road tracks um, using dynamite, and uh, whatever happened, one of the one of the spikes just went right through his skull, and uh, I believe it was a part of his frontal cortex that it went through, and suddenly it changed his whole personality and. Uh, he's one of the big case studies yeah. and similarly HM, uh, the patient HM who has a full name but I don't know it, uh, went in for surgery and then suddenly didn't have a memory after. He wasn't able to create new memories and that becomes, oh, this is an interesting study. But again, in the First World War and with a lot of those uh, subsequent wars, you not only get the individual case study, but you get these huge, uh, huge amounts of data that people can start going up. Actually, even though we don't have to have any extra technology, we can see these people had the same thing happen, these people had different things happen, yeah. and this was, you know, here's the similarities and differences in the results. And then the second thing that happened was uh, technology started to improve. So I really love the stories of um, how they started trying to figure things out. So in the early days when it was psychology, uh, oh, I don't know who it was. I'm, part of me wants to say William James, but I actually don't know if it was him. So, uh, <laughs> well, when they were trying to measure how fast uh, neurons can react, they had this idea of, well, if I squeeze your hand uh, and then you squeeze back as soon as you feel me squeeze your hand, then what happens is that we'll get an idea of how fast the, the electrical impulse takes to go up to your brain and then back down. Because when I squeeze your hand, you'll get the sensory signal. Um, and then it goes all the way up to your brain. And then your brain will say, oh, great, let's, uh, let's send a motor command. Uh, so if I time how long it takes you to squeeze back, then we know that we've got double the time of an electrical signal. The problem is they didn't have a stopwatch that could measure it 
uh, very so accurately. Like, yeah. So what they ended up doing was they got a whole line of people, uh, they got like 50 people standing in a line all holding hands. Uh, the guy with the stopwatch would squeeze and start the stopwatch and he'd be on roller skates, he'd roller skate <laughs> his way all the way down to the, uh, to the end of the line and uh, rejoin and when he felt the other squeeze he would stop the stopwatch uh, and then obviously the bigger the number the more accurate the, the data. Um, I cannot remember where I heard that story, but I really hope oh, that just the roller skates out that is brilliant. true. Yeah, <laughs> I really hope that's true. But wow. that's kind of technology started there, and then it was when we st started getting uh, ways to scan the brain. Uh, we were able to do it, but we couldn't scan it very well, and so all these rumors started coming out of we only use 5% of our brains, yeah. we only use 10% of our brains. And and, yeah, after a certain age, you stop developing the ability yeah. to change it and all that. And really, all it was is the technology available wasn't able to measure more than that. It just yeah. wasn't fast enough to measure all the other activity that was going on. So, uh, as technology develops, we're able to measure more things, we're able to do more things. Uh, so, that's kind of why now we're at the point where we've been measuring all the physical stuff for a very long time. That has a lot of data available to it, so scientifically that's uh, really valuable. Yeah. But then the problem is, if you just follow the science, you're not going to be the best. If you if you try to train yourself uh, the way that is tried and tested and proven 100%, this is how it works. You're never going to be the guy who beats everybody, unless well, unless you're the perfect specimen of that yeah. of that specific. That type. pyramid will always have a flat top. Yeah. Everybody will train themselves according to the letter. Everybody trains it that way, and uh, so yeah, there will be a certain percentage that'll get that. What happens though is then you get this whole really fun layer on top, which some some people hate and some people love. Like on one side of it, at the very top, you've got the people that just take an idea and decide this is the way forward. Why I've got this special rock that's a magic crystal that does this specific thing, or maybe at some point, oh, I think training my eyes might be really good. I'll train my eyes as if the muscles in my eyes work the same as the muscles in my biceps, uh, and I'm just going to run with that, even though I've got no scientific uh, proof or evidence. Uh, so there's people like that on the top. Uh, and then what happens is some of these guys start winning uh, medals and competitions or developing new technologies and, and things like that. And then people go, ah, let's find out if it, any of this was actually worth it. So maybe the, the rock and the magic crystal, uh, maybe we're not able to find anything. So we go, that's probably not a thing. And then <laughs> that guy goes, well, has the choice. Well, he can either say, okay, I'll look for another thing. Or he can go, no, you're wrong, magic crystal. My, this is my crystal. This is my crystal. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, but maybe then with the eye exercises, somebody goes, "Oh, actually, this kind of maybe we maybe we don't have it conclusively proved yet, but we think there's something here." And then uh, that pyramid, that pyramid point where it's flat, starts to rise up in that direction. Yeah. That people who do the vision training um, in that way start to get a little bit better and then there's more research about it so then it starts to branch into well what about this, what about this, what about this. Yeah. More people trying means more people testing uh, and then we get to find out more about it and I think that's kind that's of where the, we're at with neuroscience is some people were doing yeah, the weird and 
crazy stuff up at the top and neuroscience was just catching up to a bit that goes oh hang on a lot of that stuff might be uh might be interesting to look at and some of it we'll find out is really good and some of it we'll find out was a terrible idea and we'll yeah. hopefully we'll leave it behind we might not <laughs> magic crystal <laughs> no. yeah. um, but seriously um yeah it's like you'll get people that will take the standardized the stuff that we know now and push it a little bit further and what if whatever it is depending if they start getting success with it and if they start getting results with it especially in the likes of professional sports you look at basketball and football or soccer if you're in america um or you know nhl nfl anything like that as soon as you start getting success with it as soon as they start putting money into it that's when you'll get all this extra research you actually start really sort of sharpening the point, if that makes sense, and getting, for the theories, getting the research to back it up. So it kind of goes, the research is there to a certain point, but then you've got to trust the theory until you then you can develop it enough that there's research then coming out to back it up as well, so that you're always pushing it that little bit further. Yeah, yeah, and for most people it's just, find enough research to make what you're doing credible as long as it's giving you the results that you want. Yeah. Um, we always joke uh, some of the biofeedback that we stu the stuff that we do uh, where we're able to improve people's uh, range of motion and we can do it really, really quickly. Um, I've brought that to a number of circus conventions and uh, circus folk, Sometimes, sometimes can be quite serious, and sometimes uh, very much the opposite. Yeah. And so we had this. Well, oh, if you can do an eye drill and improve your range of motion, and I've had several people ask, well, how much can we mess with that? How much yeah. could we convince someone that not only do they need to do this eye exercise, but actually they've got to spin around three times and then touch the floor, and only if they lick this specific uh, donut once uh, that they'll be able to do it. And uh, I think that's kind of a good analogy for if you're not testing this stuff you could be doing a whole lot of unnecessary things yeah. uh, so while you might run with an idea you still have to keep testing it to make sure okay is all of this doing the stuff that I'm saying or what stuff is it just not possible to know yeah. so you some always stuff, want to be trying to prove yourself wrong yeah and some stuff you just won't be able to test so how much of that do you go, well, I can't test it, but am I happy to just go with it, or should I leave it and try something else? Because uh, there's probably not just one thing that's gonna be the thing that makes you better. There's probably about 100 things if you could find them. So yeah. you don't need to be relying on just one. And a lot of that, I think, and I'm 100%, 110 million percent sure that you're gonna agree, that this actual, the science, the basic, the basis of the solid, 100% guaranteed science and the periphery they're starting to merge now and they're actually starting to give sort of give sort of um, roots to these openings where the, it's the most likely theory and the most likely sort of methods that are getting results they're actually now channeling effort into solidifying why they're doing that um, you look at it it's let's look at vision training if you look at football for example or basketball they started going Oh, we deal with ball sports. Maybe training your eyes and the ability for your eye to focus from I don't know an opposing player to the ball, to the net, to back to the. Maybe if we get good at that, it might help us play those ball sports 
a little ball sports. Ball sports a little bit better, you know. And they go, people go, oh, that's yeah, let's try that. And then when they start winning, that's when they start seriously looking at why this vision trainer works, what's the benefit of it, and how how can we push that and get better. So yeah, it's kind of it's merging. Kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. I find with neuroscience a little bit. Yeah, it's one of those things like it makes total sense to say, oh yeah, if you train your vision, you'll be able to see things better. Uh, but then on the other side, you go, well, hang on, if if this team's already the best and they don't do that, well, why should we do it? And then it's only after one person tries it and starts seeing the results, then they go, oh yeah, maybe maybe this is a thing. And with the vision training. Uh, now they've started to research it and they found, uh, I think the biggest ones were the ACL tear, the biggest ones I know of anyway, ACL tears in runners uh, went down massively, presumably uh, because they're not having to turn their heads so much, they can just use their eyes yeah. to So it actually it. allows the, the rest of the body to actually move the way it's supposed to move instead of having to move extra to stabilize something else. Yeah, remove the way that they trained it to move. And yeah. in football players as well, the uh, pre-season training resulted in far fewer concussions uh, by the end of the season. Um, again, probably just because people aren't as likely to crash into each other if their eyes can move quicker and also, as well as move quicker, understand what they're seeing better yeah, as well. that's the key. I think the earlier you get the information, the more time you have to interpret. And if you have time to interpret, you've got time to generate the output. That's going to stop big data from the opposing team taking you out of force. You know, so if you can see that coming early enough, you've got plenty of time to avoid it. So yeah, yeah, uh, that's a big one that's kind of come through now. The other big one I think is Wim Hof with the breathing, like everything that that guy did. Everybody said wasn't possible, and uh, then once he did it, he kind of invited people to come and do the research and then they discovered uh, actually quite a lot of things that are beneficial through his breathing technique and uh, while that's not necessarily about the breathing itself it's more about the uh, stress that in yeah. putting your body into a stress state uh, they discovered there was lots of really cool stuff from that uh, yeah I personally feel the vestibular training that uh, we look at um, is one of the next things that uh, is probably going that way. Uh, I think people aren't specifically looking at vestibular training, uh, which by that which I mean um, inner ear training and balance systems. Uh, it's it's going to probably be the next thing as they've started to notice things like uh, concussions uh, after concussions. Uh, people with post-concussion syndrome uh, started to have fewer symptoms of depression uh, if they can add in vestibular training and things like that. And uh, so some research is starting to be done and I actually think eventually it's going to uh, blow up. It, it really is. Uh, you can see it on social media already. If you just look through, if you go on Instagram or anything like that, you will see social media, like the, the influencer fitness um, companies, and they've started drip feeding the word vestibular, and they've done like some very basic vestibular type exercises. That when you start seeing it come into the sort of common vernacular, you start going, it's it's like vision training was five years ago um, it's now going to be vestibular I think as well 
um, which is great because things it gives people more options um, and it gets them looking at the whole sort of organism I think the whole brain first approach because they can say vestibular they can say vision or they can say proprioceptive or whatever but it's now getting to the point where people are starting to realize that all of this stuff all lives in the same place yeah and it all relates to each other um, where I know we're both big fans of the Andrew Huberman podcast and one of the big things it's uh, only for his dog really <laughs> you know yeah. Costello one of the big things that uh, got us thinking about uh, another part of vestibular training and that was uh, when he was talking about research on neuroplasticity in adults that actually uh, challenging the vestibular system challenging your body's ability to balance is a really good way of setting the brain up into a neuroplastic state and that actually if you want to be able to learn anything better when you're an adult uh, challenging and training the vestibular system is a really good idea and that's kind of one of the things that sort of pushed us towards having a vestibular training uh, program on one of our online courses uh, just because it's as well as the postural implications and movement implications that we think it has uh, also it should help make, make people better at learning things as they get older as well yeah and speaking of um, the vestibular sort of how valuable that is um, I know by the time you were telling me you were coaching two physiotherapists um, to tumble teaching them how to tumble and they're actually now which I think is fantastic and I think in 10 years time all physios will have to know a base level of neurology but you were saying they were starting to be taught now about the vestibular system yeah that was really cool that was um it was really funny at the time as well because I was trying to shout as much as I could about the brain but obviously nobody ever listens I don't have a medical background I don't especially back then uh, it's even not so much a now I don't have that much credibility when I try to say science says this or that. We're just two dudes with our magic crystals. So yeah, we just we just like finding the magic crystals and throwing them at people to see if they work, and then sticking with the ones that uh, work the best. Um, but I started trying these. We were we run an acrobatics class, and uh, a big thing in acrobatics I've always thought is really great is you have to be able to regress the movement you have to make it easier in all stages so if you're going to be able to do a forward somersault well if you can't roll well then you're probably not going to be able to somersault well your brain has to understand too many things uh, that if it doesn't understand it in the roll then the somersault's probably not going to happen yeah adding danger isn't going to help you do better yeah and yeah. maybe not in all cases maybe there is that one guy who just unless it's middle names danger he just loves yeah. it yeah unless it's on fire He's not interested. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for the majority of people, actually, they their brain needs to understand uh, all of those little components. And then once I started learning about the vestibular system, I kind of thought, all right, well, actually, all of these things are different head movements. So I got really fascinated by the idea that the inner ear canals, the, uh, the canals living inside your ears that deal with balance, uh, you've got three on each side and one looks at your head movement horizontally one looks at head movement diagonally to the back and one looks at head movement diagonally to the front 
there's none that goes straight backwards or straight forwards, yet in gymnastics, that's all the movement that we do. It only goes straight forwards or straight backwards or twisting horizontally. So I kind of thought, all right, well, uh, actually, shouldn't we test that out? Shouldn't we make sure that both of these inner ear canals are able to work together? Because if they're not, you're going to see people rolling towards one side, putting way more weight on one shoulder than the other, and uh, maybe that's going to lead to problems. Um, so I started trying these vestibular exercises, and these physios were there, and they said, "Oh, this is really interesting. We've just had to. We just spent the whole." day learning about the vestibular system and how it's uh, good for posture adjustment and how actually a lot of the postural postural work that we do with people uh, might not be effective if there are vestibular issues or vestibular problems involved. Uh, later that year I was presenting at an aerial conference uh, around some of this stuff, so some of the biofeedback stuff that we talk about now uh, and I had another physio who was talking about warm-ups and uh, she gave a big lecture on you know how to warm up your body and how we need to move away from thinking it's all about if you've just moved each joint individually then that's enough and that actually you have to think of the body as a whole and the first example that she gave and got everyone to try was a vestibular warm-up and sort of said hey, actually, rather than moving all your joints, why don't you move the bit that speaks to all the joints and yeah. actually helps tell them where they're going and where they are. And if we add in all these head movements, it could be just as good as of a warm-up and take half the time. And uh, yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. That's it, yeah. Why spend time, you know, going around every individual joint, warming up when actually you can just go to the source and warm up the bit that tells everything else to move? makes so much sense whenever you know about it obviously whenever you're down the line and you go oh yeah actually that that's how it works but speaking of warm-ups um that leads really nicely in seamless segue into generally athletes that most athletes especially ones in ball sports or field sports or anything like that have actually dealt with a brain injury and they don't even know it so they have you know, collide it with another player, um, they've got a concussion or they've, I don't know, they've went to do hurdles and tripped on their hurdle, conked their head on the ground, you know, they will have had some kind of implication and if that hasn't been rehabbed properly, then it could be impacting their performance as they still go on training. Yeah, you know, it's a really weird one because uh, I guess people are still in a weird place when you mention the brain. Uh, they think serious brain injuries. Yeah, their when, we, when we mention the brain, we're either talking about mental health issues, which, uh, although we're trying, we're still not in a good place to be talking about, uh, or they're talking about, uh, yeah, like serious concussions and uh, brain uh, a brain injury in most people's mind is something, oh, this, that puts you out. But yeah, that, actually... That's a life changer yeah, they, in their thought. But... In actual fact, there's most things that you do, everything that you do affects your brain and your brain's reacting to things in different ways. And uh, I know just from working with people, after a while, you like, anything your brain isn't using, you're gonna lose those abilities. And in a way, that's still as much of a 
maybe not an injury, but it's reduced ability in certain areas yeah. that uh, we have a test that we do the, where we have to tap people's fingers and they have to say how many fingers are in between and just... Yeah, uh, span test. Digit span test, yeah. And uh, that's the amount of people who cannot tell how many fingers are in between fingers that have been touched yeah. or the amount of people that uh, if you tap them with one or two one or two points they're not able to tell whether it was one thing or two yeah. things they or, don't have that sensation ability yeah or sometimes people can't tell the difference between hot and cold or uh we get a lot of people actually weirdly since we when we do our neuro performance assessments uh that actually aren't seeing out of both of their eyes yeah so that's a really common one i've noticed that was more common than i thought it, i really thought that it would be like yeah. not hugely common but it common comes enough to up notice. a lot yeah and, uh, <laughs> yeah people when both their eyes are open uh for whatever reason their brain decides it only actually wants information from one eye to to make all of their decisions and uh, if they cover that eye the other eye can still see so the, that person assumes well both my eyes are working because yeah. I can cover each one and I can see just fine uh, I've had people running towards uh, springboards and uh, like vaults uh, and they run completely sideways because obviously if you're only using one eye to see you, you still point want that towards it yeah you still want to see everything in the middle you don't want to see everything slightly yeah. to your right or left so you're going to twist your whole body uh, and that's kind of what those uh, physios were getting at when they were talking about posture correction you know if yeah. i'm only able to see out of my right eye well no wonder i've got scoliosis or no wonder i've got rotation in my spine because my eye is yeah. forcing me to like so even though that to... other eye is seeing, your brain isn't using the picture from it, it's just blocking it and going, nope, yeah. not using that, we're going to use favourite eye number one here, and that's why it will help you, you'll adapt to it. Yeah. Um, but So that's why most athletes, as I said, you know, that have had a, a brain injury, a concussion, something like that, they will more than likely have adapted to it and they will be still training away at their sports and playing sports. and probably a lot of uh, high level athletes but if that's the case if rehabbing those old collisions or injuries fully can increase their performance to get them back to where they have the ability to perform too that also says a lot about if you can get back to that by doing this kind of work why can you not then take that percentage that you've increased and improved by and actually just take that on doesn't have to be an elite athlete, but the average Joe, average person, and actually make them an extra 5% better, an extra 3% better. I think people kind of think, you know, if I can do something well, then uh, I couldn't be helped by addressing those smaller issues. Uh, I'm, well, I'm very against that whole prehab thing of, you know, let's just make sure everything works okay in case you ever need it. But uh, for stuff, you know, can I, could I throw faster if I just had a look at all of these basic components and uh, if I addressed the weakest link, would it be able to make me throw better? And people kind of just assume, well, I can already throw quite well, so it must not be any of these small things. It must be a big thing. There must be a big thing that I'm missing that, uh, that I'm going to search for. Um, but yeah, when you find that, 
small thing, then you'll be able to get results from it. Yeah, and I think the key thing is, the brain, as we keep saying all the time to anyone that will listen, random version of the street, the brain controls everything. So it's the, the brain, not your physical ability, obviously that has a role to play in it, but not your, your physical ability doesn't control how good you are as an athlete. Your brain, it has the stopgap, it has the gate, it's the gatekeeper as to how your body's going to perform. So, and it's listening all the time. It's listening to everything. It's listening to what's going on in your life. It's listening to your environment, your food intake, the physical training you do, all of that. Yeah, and it's listening to your needs as well. So, like, that's why you can still stay good at stuff, even if those more basic systems uh, get compromised. So, like, if you see somebody uh, walking around in a cast, but they're fully dressed, well, you know that they they adapted to that. They they had to get dressed with just one arm, um, and actually, that's not the way that they they normally did it. But the brain went, well, what do you need to do? can't go outside naked so I'm gonna figure out a way to make all this happen and uh, you know if you gave them that arm back they'd be able to get dressed quicker and they'd probably prefer it which uh, would be better to kind of address that but um, but that's how they are and the same with if your eyes don't work as well as they potentially could if your inner ear doesn't work as well as it potentially could if you don't breathe as well as you could that's a huge one even just do you breathe through your mouth versus your nose uh, that's going to massively affect the quality of your breathing through 25,000 breaths in a day. So, um, you know, by addressing those, it's like taking the cast off the guy and allowing him to get dressed quicker. You'll still be able to do the same stuff, but with a lot less stress on your body than you previously had. Yeah, and if you're doing it with a lot less stress and a lot less, less threat in there, um, especially if you're doing something repetitive, they say a baseball pitcher, so throwing the pitch. If you're doing that with a lot lower threat stress level, the idea is that the body's the brain's quickly going to hand that off and make it become reflexive. So you're going to just do it as a reflex instead of having to consciously interpret and decide an output. So you'll be getting better and better and better at it because it becomes reflexive. It just becomes something you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of, yeah, one of the things that we look at a lot is the autonomic side of movement is just uh, all of those things like breathing, like even like your blood pressure, your inner ear, your vision, uh, all of the senses in your body, um, if they're working well, then your brain doesn't feel like it's in danger all the time. Uh, so you will feel more able to, to focus on those things and put them into your long-term learning. Yeah, and also change, it doesn't, as we said earlier, it doesn't have to be the longest process. It all depends on intent and intensity. Um, and that also relates to basically how under threat you feel because you're not going to change or you're not going to, you know, benefit more from neuroplasticity if you're constantly stressed and under threat and your brain's freaking out. It's not going to be in a state where it wants to do anything. Yeah. Um, that's one of the ones we look at for startle like there's a certain point where your brain isn't going to learn anything because it just thinks everything's too dangerous so there's no point in taking any lessons from this because 
you might be doing yourself damage. So uh, when things get too stressful, your brain just sort of shuts those things out of your mind and just decides not to learn anything from the experience. Yeah. So hopefully that's pretty much covered most of the stuff that I think we wanted to cover. Generally, we just wanted to get across that you know neurology can be used as a tool to do quite a lot of things. And I know we've related a lot of it back to sports because generally that's what we deal with is people either in rehab um, or who play sports basically and want to perform better. So that would be most of what we would deal with, but it can relate to anything. It can relate to getting better sleep, reducing our anxiety levels, learning a new language. It can relate to anything. It, the, it's the brain can use the tools it has available to change itself. Yeah, that's one of the things. So in terms of the future of all this stuff, I'm really excited about where I think it can actually go because we set ourselves up as a movement company and then generally that means the kinds of people who want to come see us, either there's something really wrong uh, or they're people who are fitness people anyway. And uh, we kind of say, well, fitness people go see fitness professionals and uh, everyone else we'll just go see a doctor. When, when things get really bad, we'll go see a doctor and actually uh, we don't need to do anything more to look after our health. And I really hope in the future with neuroscience and with psychology and once all of this stuff kind of merges together, we start to realize that movement doesn't necessarily have to mean workouts. Uh, it can, and uh, we're gonna talk in another episode about uh, you know, the difference between doing like heavy workouts between uh, the things that I really like doing, which is uh, high dexterity things like Rubik's Cubes and things like that, and learning other languages. But uh, our brains are built specifically for movement, and actually, everything that we do is going to depend on how well our brain is adapted to, to do those things, but all of them will require movement. So uh when we work with people it's always just about finding all of those entry level things that could be uh could be going wrong and then for us it doesn't really matter whether they're going out to do crossfeet 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 crossfit or uh or they're you know we've had uh singing teachers and and people like that uh come in and do sessions with us um the movement side of it's the same. We just sort out uh, the things that can be causing the body stress so that it can go and enjoy the things that it's actually doing. So I'm hoping later on we don't have to deal with stuff like that. Yeah, that's exactly it. So like, I think the reach of neuroscience and the application of like functional neurology kind of in, in sort of everyday things, not just the sports world and that kind of thing, is immense and I think it's only only going to get bigger in the next couple of years so as I said you know as you said we've got we're going to cover about exercise and in an ep, a later episode ep, episode they can't speak anymore James yeah yeah oh. that's how we know we're at the time it's yes. time to wrap it up our brains are done they've changed for the worse <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah but we'll speak about that you know what what type of uh, training programs do what and how to train or what's probably the best way to train for you and that kind of thing. But our next episode is going to be why and how the brain was designed for movement because we've mentioned that the brain has evolved for movement so we might as well 
be led straight into that and have that covered in the next episode. Yeah, let's do that. And hopefully we'll see, it's not just about fitness, it's not just about workouts, it's not just about sweating. Uh, movement is super big, super small, covers everything. It covers absolutely everything. Um, from, you have to, even the act of what we're doing now, talking, is movement. Um, singing is movement. Writing a book is movement. Typing on your phone is movement. The same way of doing a broad jump or a heavy back squat is movement. But yeah, so we will leave it there and we will see you next time.